recorded at the Vanamali Gita Yogashram Rishikesh North India situated on the bank of the holy river Ganga at the foothills of the Himalayas this is the fourth talk in the series and is on the third chapter of the Srimad Bhagavad Gita it is entitled Karma Yoga or the Yoga of Action ಪ್ರಜಾಸೃಷ್ಟ್ವಾಪುರೋವಾಚ ಪ್ರಜಾಪತಿ ಅನೇನ ಪ್ರಸವಿಶ್ವಧ್ವಮೇಶ ಮ
परस्परं भावयन्ता श्रेय परमवाप्यष्टान् भोगान्वो देवाद्यो यो यज्ञशिष्टाशिनस्तोचंदेसर्वकिषैर्भवतिर्जन्यात्मकारणाभवतिभर्जन्योत्यकर्मसमुद्भव ्रियामोहमतीवती ृत्यूनाश्रय ोकसंग्रहमेवापश्यर्हसी यदाचरदेतरोजन मनुष्यापाश उत्सीदेयुरीमेलोगानकुर्यांकर्मचेदहंसंकरस्यचकर्तास्यामुवहन्यामिमाप्रजाहसत्ताकर्मण्यविद्वांसो यथाकुर्वन्तिभारतकु
the preceptor of the universe, I offer my obeisance. The famous doctrine of Karma Yoga is the theme of the third chapter of the Gita. This is one of the most difficult sections in the whole text and provides a key to, un to the understanding of the whole message. The previous chapter ends with the picture of the Stida Pratnya, the man whose intellect and will is placed firmly in the Brahmic state of cosmic consciousness. This Arjuna could understand and appreciate because he was familiar with this idea as enunciated in the Upanishads. The usual teaching of the age pointed man to the path of knowledge, to the renunciation of life and works as the only way to perfection. The will turning away from the senses and desire and action to the highest actionless Brahman was something Arjuna could well appreciate. But there seemed to be no place here for action. Action was the opposite of knowledge, according to him. Its seed is desire and its fruit bondage. Yet Krishna insisted on work as a part of yoga. Perhaps some kind of work could persist but surely it should be the minimum and it should be of the most inoffensive kind. Not this terrible action of killing. Yet this is encouraged as a means to spiritual perfection. This is most puzzling to Arjuna and his first question in the chapter shows this. Why do you urge me to this dreadful action? Is Arjuna's qu query. Krishna replies that there are two apparently contradictory means of salvation in the world. One, the yoga of knowledge and the other, the yoga of action. Jnana Yoga and Karma Yoga, the former implying the renunciation of action as an obstacle to salvation and the other accepting action as a means to salvation. Actually, to consider these two viewpoints as contradictory is due to a misconception in the mind of man regarding the nature of action. We think that we will attain spiritual perfection by renouncing action and that action itself 
constitutes the bondage in man. That action is the chain which binds him to the wheel of samsara or the wheel of birth and death. This is not so, says the Lord, for none can remain inactive even for a minute. All are impelled to act through their very nature. So inaction is unthinkable for a cre any creature. Action is not an individual's initiative merely. It is part of the total purpose of the universe as a whole. Bondage is the consequence that follows from action which arises from the non-understanding of our vital connection to the whole to which we belong. Freedom is the opposite. So action which is preceded by knowledge cannot create bondage. Krishna shows that the physical renunciation of action is a myth which has existed in the mind of man from those very times to this very day. None can stand even for a moment without action. Man embodied in the world cannot cease from action. His very existence here is an action. The whole universe is an act of God. Here, living is itself his movement. The universe is ever active. It can never be inactive. An individual or anything else for that matter, which is a part of this active universe has no freedom to maintain an independence over the prescriptions of the cosmic laws. The way in which a man has to behave is decided by the law that operates in the universe as a whole. And for us to say that I shall act or shall not act would be a complete misunderstanding of the matter. The universe is not separate from the individual. The microcosm is part of the macrocosm. Inasmuch as there is nothing inactive in the universe, so also no individual can remain inactive. Our physical life, its maintenance and its continuance is itself a journey, a pilgrimage of the body, Sharirayatra, and that cannot be affected without action. The idea that we can be inactive arises on account of a misunderstanding 
of the nature of action. We feel that if our hands and feet do not move, if our mouths are silent, we are inactive. But action does not mean only the movement of the physical organs. Every cell of our body is active and the mind itself is never inactive. To think is to act and to be really inactive one would have to cease to think. Even in the mental inactivity of deep sleep the mind is subtly active. So there is no occasion when we can be totally inactive until we are dead. A man may have controlled his organs of action and closed his eyes and blocked his ears and shut his mouth like the three monkeys with the message, see no evil, hear no evil, and speak no evil. But he gains nothing if his mind keeps dwelling on the very objects which he has physically shut out. <clears throat> Arjuna, sitting in the forest and dwelling wrathfully on the iniquities of his cousins, the Kauravas, would be both a hypocrite as well as a fool. He would be a fool because he would be deluding himself that he is a non-actor who is well up on the spiritual path. And he would be a hypocrite since he would be fooling others that he is a renunciate who has given up the worldly life. On the other hand, he who performs action with his physical organs, unattached mentally, he is the true yogi who excels, says the Lord. The essence of yoga is thus unattached action and not inaction, which in any case is an impossibility. For though, though the Lord says that knowledge is greater than action, jayasi karmano buddhe, he does not mean that inaction is greater than action. In fact, the contrary is the truth. Karma jayo hya karmanaha. For knowledge does not mean the renunciation of works, but it means non-attachment to the objects of the senses. Jnana yoga has to be fulfilled in karma yoga. The yoga of the intelligent will finds its fulfillment in the yoga of desireless works. Thus we see that inaction 
is a misnomer and the absence of initiative in action in a physical form cannot be regarded as inaction. To be thinking actively and to be inactive physically is forcibly condemned by the Lord. Mental action is the real action. Your bondage or freedom is in the way in which your mind works and not in the movement of the physical body merely. How to control the mind and produce a truly desireless action? This is the difficulty which is solved in the next few verses. Even in the performance of our swadharma or duty, a certain amount of desire is bound to creep in. The value of the performance of any action lies in the extent of unselfishness behind it. But even in swadharma, there are traces or grades of self selfishness. In comparison with the higher stage, the lower may appear selfish. Hence, in the advance of the consciousness through the process of its evolution, we will find that there is an ascending degree in the concept of unselfishness. Until at last, there is an utter selflessness or total annihilation of the ego behind the performance of any action. Such an action becomes inaction. This can be called cosmic action. So we cannot become impersonal by going outside ourselves, but only by rising to the highest in ourselves, into our own free soul, for that is the only part of us which is truly impersonal and truly free. How can this be brought about? By doing karma yoga or yetnya karma or action performed as a sacrifice. The word sacrifice has an unhappy connotation in English. We immediately imagine the painful and unpleasant duties which are imposed on us and the joyful things we are forced to give up. But the word yetnya or sacrifice as given in the Gita has a very beautiful meaning. The Vedas describe various types of yetnyas to the gods which will bring about certain desired results by the sacrificer. Using this beautiful imagery, Krishna says, that in the beginning of creation, the Creator produced the individual 
along with the idea of yetnya, action performed as a sacrifice become, becomes worship of the divine and it shall not bind any action which is performed without this spirit of yetnya but with the selfish intention of the fulfillment of a personal motive shall bring sorrow to the individual. This is because he would be going against the rule along with which he was created. Karma Yoga, on the other hand, or the doing of action as a sacrifice to the Supreme, both in ourselves and outside us, takes off the edge of sorrow in one's life, because here one does the action as a dedication rather than a means to an ulterior and selfish end. The whole of nature is continuously offering her entire being as a sacrifice to the Supreme, her secret soul. The rain falls, the flowers bloom, the sun shines, and the river flows in a continuous offering to the Supreme Soul, quite uncaring for the fruits of their action. Man stands alone amidst this orgy of gift-giving, selfish and adamant that he should be the sole benefactor of the results of his action. It is surprising that in the midst of the abundance and ecstasy of life one finds in nature man alone stands desolate and depraved. So long as he acts without the spirit of sacrifice for personal enjoyment alone, utterly selfish, he misses the true aim and meaning of life. Vain indeed is such a life, says Krishna. Mogham partha sajivati. It is only when he begins to realize that his life is a part of this divine action in nature and not a separate thing to be pursued for his own sake that he starts to evolve. Then he begins to regard the fruit of his desires as the fruit of the cosmic sacrifice which nature offers to her Lord and ceases to pursue them selfishly as if they could be seized from life by him by his own initiative, without giving anything in return, not even gratitude. 
as this knowledge increases, he gives up the fruit of his action, or rather, he offers up the fruit of action as a yetnya to the Supreme, who indeed is the giver of the fruit and remains satisfied, nay replete with the prasad or leftover after the sacrifice has been made. Only then does he begin to participate in the great yetnya of life and realize that his actions are only part of the great interchange between his life and the universal life. This inner giving up of fruit and yet the physical doing of them is the culmination of the yetnya. The whole of the Gita's gospel of karma rests on this idea of sacrifice, the Vedantic truth that all is Brahman and all existence is a divine movement opening out from him and returning to him. All is the expressed activity of prakriti or nature, which itself is a power of the Supreme. It is for his satisfaction that she descends into the numerous forms of life and eventually returns again through the evolution of mind and self-knowledge to a conscious possession of the soul which pulsates within her. All action must in its inmost reality be a sacrifice of works, a karma yoga offered by Prakriti to the Supreme Person, nature offering to the infinite the desire of the finite within her. Life is an altar to which she brings the fruits of her works and lays them before whatever aspect of the divinity the consciousness in her has reached. When sacrifice is not willingly given, nature extracts it by force and thus satisfies the law of yetnya. A mutual giving and receiving is the law of life. The universe is his dominion and house of worship and not a field for the self-satisfaction of the ego. It is a field for the discovery of the Supreme. To seek him through sacrifice, culminating in perfect self-giving, founded on perfect self-knowledge, is that to which the experience of life is intended to lead. But man sees himself as the actor and the enjoyer and ignores the law of sacrifice 
and seeks to grab all he can for himself and gives nature only what he is compelled to give. Such a man is a thief, says Krishna, who takes without giving in return. The real evolution begins when he sees a law other than his own desires. The real sacrifice is the one done with knowledge when he perceives that all forms are the one form of the Supreme. This is the Purushottama of the Gita to whom all sacrifice is to be offered not for any personal fruit but as a gift to him, the Supreme Soul. In other words, man's way to salvation lies through an increasing impersonality. It is his constant experience that the more he opens himself to the impersonal and infinite, the less is he bound by his ego and the more he feels a sense of peace and happiness. The liberated man has nothing to gain either by action or inaction. He depends neither on gods nor man for anything. He seeks no profit. He has dependence on none, for he delights in the self alone. So why should such a man act is the next doubt. Lord Krishna clears this doubt by giving the portrait of the two great karma yogis. One is the king Janaka and the other is he himself. Janaka was a king who was a realized sage yet he continued to do his duty as a king for the sake of the welfare of his people. Lord Krishna's example is also quoted. What is, what is it that the Lord lacks? What is it that he has to gain by the performance of action? Yet, yet ceaselessly he works. For if he remained silent, others would follow his example and would come to ruin. So an, as an example to the world and for the sake of the welfare of the world, even a liberated soul should continue to work. The Lord is the greatest karma yogi of all. He was prepared to take up the menial role of Arjuna's charioteer and carry it out in his own inimitable fashion, thus setting an example to the world that all work is an act of worship, a yetnya to the cosmic being, and that every work, if, however menial, can be the means to spiritual progress is done with the correct 
mental attitude. It is said that the end of each day's battle, he would himself rub down his horses and feed them before attending to his own needs. Thus, action cannot bind the truly enlightened one who has an insight into the true purpose of human existence, which is one with the purpose of cosmic existence. The life of Lord Krishna is itself the perfect example of how one can fulfill this cosmic purpose by the disinterested performance of one's own swadharma. According to our nature must be the path which each man takes up. Each one must seek his salvation by following the path as laid down by his nature and position in life. For a man to try for another ways, for another's way of life, however pleasant it may look, is to go against the laws of his nature and would thus bring harm to himself and the society he lives in. This verse is again misinterpreted. Should a man not try to better himself is the question. By all means one can try this, but the best path for you would be in following the path of disinterested action according to the dictates of your own nature. For a tiger to file his claws and take up the swadharma of a lamb would be as foolish as it would be impracticable and would result in death for himself and a consequent end to all his spiritual aspirations. To one's own nature one has to be true, for therein lies our path to spiritual fulfillment. In this there is true justice. For if all of us were expected to follow certain impossible standards, there would be no hope of salvation for most of us. But the Gita has decreed that each one can evolve according to his own nature and at his own pace. This is the most beautiful of the Gita's teachings that nothing is condemned or utterly cast out as being beyond the pale. Everything has a place and purpose in the evolution of life. The worship of the totem pole by the tribal is as much a necessity and a step in the ladder of evolution as the worship of the Supreme Brahman. Nothing is purposeless. God fulfills himself in all ways. Arjuna immediately asks a question. 
What is it that instigates a man to commit sin unwillingly as if compelled by some inner propulsion? The Lord says once again that desire is the only sin, desire for personal selfish gain resulting in anger which eventually destroys all knowledge. These two, desire and anger, act through the medium of the mind, and these are the enemies of even the wise, he says. Therefore, O Arjuna, kill this enemy within yourself. You think you are a mighty hero and have destroyed many enemies, but until you have destroyed these enemies within yourself, you cannot be called a hero. Destroy them, therefore, within yourself, and only then can you be victorious in the battlefield of life. Hariyom Tatsat Om Asadoma Sadgamaya Tamasoma Jyotirgamaya Mrityorma Mritam Gamaya Om Shanti 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 from unreality lead us to reality, from darkness to light, and from death to the life immortal. Om, peace, peace, peace.